Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? Uh, I feel like doom this this week or, or today. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you, is that something that has like reached the United States? Doom. <laughs> well, let me tell you how Los Angeles County has declared a state of emergency for coronavirus. Uh, Stanford University, which is six hours away from here, has shut down all classes for fear of the coronavirus because one of their faculty members has tested positive. And of course, if a faculty member has it, that person is in contact with students all day. Uh, they've decided to shut down classes. There are other schools that have as well. I think Columbia is one of them. So, it, you know, it's it just doom. Yeah, doom seems like the right word. And like this weekend, I was in Toronto uh, because BLM has opened up a art and organizing space. Yay. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. And at the party, there was this wonderful performer whose name I can't remember, but I will get it for the show notes, who did this fantastic poem. And at one point in this performance was like talking rapid spitfire like everything I've been thinking every morning it was like uh and then we're all gonna die and coronavirus and you can't shake hands and and must wash hands but also check the news because there might be war and then also it was just like you know and we're gonna die because climate change and the and the forests can't absorb the co2 and the oil and it was just like over and over like it was just like the spitfire of doom and I was like that very accurately represents um my thought process. <laughs> so, doom, you say? <laughs> Absolutely. This episode is not going to be um, doom me. Actually, it might be. It might be full of doom. Let's try not to predict the future. Okay. On this okay. One. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to go. What's the doom version of gleeful? Like that's what I want to talk about. Uh, the doom version of gleeful, more uh, morose. <laughs> that's quite right <laughs> I don't know if that's quite right but somewhere in that in that avenue we pick our topics based on what's going on in the world and uh, we didn't have much time to discuss before this episode as, as, as you know regular listeners will know um, and it just feels like we have to talk about coronavirus because it's so everywhere and it is such an interesting issue because it lays bare so many problems with the system, the system as it is, the system as it has been constructed, the system as it has been transformed in the last 20 years, the last 10 years, the last two years. And so this episode, yeah, is, I, I don't know, like, are we gonna leave you laughing? Maybe, maybe, because I mean, like, there's some funny stuff, <laughs> like the germaphobe. I mean, what else can you really do at a time like this? Nothing else. Like the germaphobe Donald Trump has been like, has had like cor- coronavirus um, contacted people, not contracted, but people who had been in contract with others who have contracted it on his plane on Air Force One. I love. It's just like the guy is known for being a germaphobe. Could there have been a more? It's like pr- what is it? Prophetic fallacy or pathetic fallacy or? No, that's when the weather dictates how things are going. Which I mean, we also have um, with, with with climate change. Okay, let's just let's just get into it. <laughs> that was perfect. That was a perfect opening. But before that, do we have anybody to thank before we start? Or should we just move right into it? We definitely have folks to thank. February was our best month ever, um, which I guess, you know, makes sense because 
people are finding the podcast and and listening and sending us feedback and sending us messages. If you send us a message and we don't respond, um, it might be because you're using a platform that's kind of that we're not able to monitor because actually on our website, it's not clear to us. It might be more clear to you that you're contacting us. Anyway, you know, you can leave messages uh, for us at our website. You can uh, direct message me if you've got something to say about the show. Obviously, you can, you know, share the show on on Twitter and on uh, Facebook and with your comments. And we might be able to see it, especially if you tag us. So I want to thank a lot of folks this week. I want to thank uh, Jackie, Sarah, Jonathan, Kathleen, Quail, Dominic, and Chelsea, thanks so much for your support. Thank you. So appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate you. And actually, I'm not even sure, like, because we haven't been able to do this in the last couple of weeks. So there's also Patrick, Elliot, Renee, and Mal. I'm not sure we've mentioned you folks either. Adriano, thank you as well. Yay. I mean, we will have live show announcements for you soon. So soon. We have ideas. We have suggestions. Suggestions and ideas and places we want to be. So, you know, we saw a bunch of you have uh, requested spots. So we've got a couple of spots in mind, we're thinking. But, you know, Edmonton's one of them. We promised you Edmonton. So <laughs> Edmonton's one of them. But For sure. We've got some ideas. And we are also very, very close to the next tier on Patreon, which, again, um, continues to shock and surprise me because I never thought that we would get this far. Uh, but we're pretty close to the point where we would be inviting some of our listeners to to join us as guests on the show to talk about some of these issues. So, you know, um, so, so long as we keep getting some support, we're going to get there and uh, we'll figure out a way to get some folks on every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're recording at night. Uh, we're recording a bit later than we normally record, so um, we'll be actually more up-to-date with some of our statistics than we would have been if we recorded on Sunday. I just played soccer and was around a lot of bodily fluids of other people. <laughs> I mean... mm, well, I go to school, so... Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might have me beat because you have kids, but I have a nephew who's often... Um, in my home and he sneezed all over the utensils yesterday so we <laughs> oh my god and he's in daycare regularly right so we we just like immediately put everything in the dishwasher <laughs> just like we're we're washing everything you guys because he is as tall as the utensil drawer I'm gonna say that again because I found something he is as tall as the utensil drawer and uh no fork was safe <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was sick last year for six weeks with um, a pretty vicious illness, and it was uh, oh it was started by um, my friend's uh, very beautiful child who I was taking care of, um, and and she sneezed right on my plate at dinner, and I was like, Oh no! I was like, You know what? I'm fucking strong, man. Like I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pretend that didn't happen, and. I mean, she got really sick immediately after, and then I got really sick. I, th I thought that I was going to have to be hospitalized after a presentation in Regina. I mean, kids, man, they are vectors. And, and we know this. We talk about this all the time as a society about how kids are little germ bags and flea bags and all this stuff. And, and so it's so fascinating to me whenever there's a discussion about contracts uh, or contract negotiations where people want more sick days and like the whole like clown parade of shitheads are like oh sick days that's greed that's people being lazy you don't deserve sick days you gotta work and it's like hey welcome to public health 101 featuring your teacher the coronavirus 
<laughs> or COVID-19 as it's now been now been called. I just I mean w- one thing that's kind of interesting is that apparently this uh this new uh, coronavirus has not been affecting children uh as much as uh, a regular flu. So um that's interesting because that means that w- who's really passing it along is not is not children in the same way. But that being said, uh, have you been looking at the numbers? Like what the um, World Health Organization has estimated is the fatality rate? Yes, I have been. That's pretty terrifying. 3.4%, I think, is the current update. And that's pretty terrifying. And it seems like all of the news and discussion around uh, COVID-19 ranges from either like really intense racism or really intense denialism as in this is a conspiracy to make us not think about all the real shit that's happening in the world to really intense we're all gonna die um we must get all of the toilet paper that exists um what is that i missed that whole announcement like i literally don't (laughs) understand what the toilet paper thing is. i understand what the toilet paper (laughs) thing is okay so there's been a bunch of news that has been saying that people should so and i have seen that other people are confused about the toilet paper thing so i am here to explain to you <laughs> about the toilet paper thing there's been a bunch of news that has been saying okay you know if you're nervous what is it that you can do besides washing your hands if the masks aren't going to help because obviously the masks don't help and if you if you don't know why wait can i guess yeah go ahead guess Okay, so, I mean, let's say you're quarantined and you can't do anything, and so you've got lots and lots and lots of toilet paper to fabricate your own masks. Exactly. They're thinking about a situation like what's happening in Italy right now. Are you kidding? People are being told, yeah, people are being <laughs> told not to go anywhere. You can't, like, you're self-quarantined in a city or a city has been is under quarantine and you're not, like, nothing is open. You're not allowed to go to... Uh, work or the supermarket and so on so get your perishables at home uh, get your toilet paper because that's what people are saying on the news to prepare as though you're going to be not able to leave home for a few weeks and I think that that's what people are doing with that toilet paper okay but that doesn't make any sense like do people not have fucking face cloths I mean or showers (laughs) or like it's just like if you are quarantined you have the time to take a shower after every shit Okay, but also here's the thing. Like I, you know, I'm I'm from a fucking immigrant family. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know how the rest of y'all live, but we always live like shit's about to go down. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm constantly ready for whatever apocalypse. They're like, "You need to get the toilet paper." I'm like, "Motherfucker, I got the toilet paper. <laughs> I have the toilet paper. I have food to last." Like, we I mean, I'm sure other immigrants out there who are listening or who people who grew up in immigrant families who are listening uh, will know what I'm talking about. But when I say that we always had like enough uh, water on standby to like flush the toilet in the event that the tap stopped working, like that's the level of prepared my family always was. <laughs> okay. And I'm not talking about <laughs> bottled water. Like we just like we always had like extra water somewhere because you know, that's just how you, when, when you're afraid that you may not be able to stay in a place, that's just how you live. So I'm just like, you what? know, me and uh, my cousin who I currently live with, we're like, oh, yeah, we've been prepared for this quarantine. So 
you know what? I'm reminded of a story that you told me about your mother that like is another dimension to all of this, which is um, like the mainstream Canadian inability to like protect themselves Mm -hmm. from germs. And you told me a story once that that if someone serves your mother a glass of water and they hold it from the top, she'd be like. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, she won't drink that shit. <laughs> and yeah, and so I was I was last week in Philly, and a waiter served me water like that, and I thought about you and your mom, and I was like, what the hell is wrong with this society? Why are you serving me water like that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, let's, let's break down some of these issues, because, I mean, I think... You know, people are, are nervous generally for themselves, but there's a way that we don't talk about some of the systemic issues that are making this particular issue much worse, or it could be making it much worse, that I think that we should talk about. Yeah. One of those things is uh, just just the way that we think about living in, in a community. Yes. Um, I live... Uh, in a community uh, where I'm frequently in contact with people whose uh, lungs may not work as well as other people. And I don't think that people think about that uh, when they're thinking about, for example, how important it is to like be the most productive human in a neoliberal society and not miss work. Uh, because they're maybe not in a risk factor group. They're like, okay, I'm a healthy 30-year-old. I'm not going to miss work. I'm not going to miss school. I'm just going to keep going. Um, And, I mean, we'll talk about uh, a little bit more about how that's not like an individual decision, obviously. Like, there's all Mm. sorts of factors that go into somebody making a decision like that, Um, and including the government making decisions for people by refusing to to give uh, the types of support necessary that allow people to make those decisions. Not thinking about, uh, you know, maybe another 30-year-old who doesn't have the same capacity in terms of their immune systems or the same capacity in terms of how uh, their lungs work and how even if, say, Nora or myself, I'm, I, you know, I don't know what your health history is, but uh, if we are not in the risk factor population, us getting sick can still really endanger other people. And that requires us to think about how we live in a community and uh, it really saddens me that a lot of people don't understand uh, the importance of um, the protection of, like, the herd, as a scientist would probably call it, rather than uh, just ourselves as individual risks um, for another type of flu, which is how a lot of people, I think, think about this. Yeah, except that the flu is also deadly, right? Absolutely. And, and this is the other thing that has been so frustrating. This is coming off of the heels of like a solid two years of anti-vaccine mainstreamed discussions. And while it's, you know, not mainstream to be anti-vaccine, the the movement is far greater than it should be and, and expresses itself um when it expresses itself, it's like, whoa, there are real people behind this who truly think the vaccines are bad. And that at the same time as austerity within the health sector has definitely changed, I think, our understanding of the necessity of of protecting the herd, of, of that mentality of making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And by taking care of yourself, you're, you're taking care of others, which does mean not going to work if you're if you're able to afford to not work. For me, what I find most 
uh, perplexing, I think, is just how ready we are to be in panic mode. Mm. And I think, you know, like, I don't want anyone listening to this episode to think that either of us are taking this not seriously. I mean, it has been, I've been, I've been traveling a lot in the last two weeks and I went from a country like in the United States where, you know, I was in Orange County where they declared a state of emergency having zero cases. Um, so I'm like, okay, like that's, that's a good, that's a good level (laughs) zero, uh, to being in, in, in Philly and passing through so many airports where, um, you know, the United States had its first death and then they realized, oh, actually testing isn't happening properly. We don't actually know how many people have this. And now we're starting to see the impact of that a a week or two later. And the way people are responding rather than saying, okay, so then how do we organize ourselves to say to, you know, in our case, the Canadian government, what are the things that we, that we need in addition to the, the, the response that public health agents have been giving out. And so, you know, you've got like really what seems like really good work happening in British Columbia. Um, you've got the Ontario government that won't publicly disclose their coronavirus plans that was announced today. So, you know, maybe by the time you're listening to this, things may have changed. Um, you know, Quebec just opened uh, four clinics across the province where, you know, if if I get sick in the next day or two or three because of my travel, I will absolutely be going to one of those clinics to see um, if I could talk to someone there. And 811 Lines, Alberta um, has been offering tests at home, which is really great. Those are all great. Those are all professional responses from professional individuals who are working on infectious diseases all the time. And, and of course, Canada's National Microbiology Lab, which is a publicly funded research laboratory, which should be reminding everybody why it's important to publicly fund research. But in spite of all that, we have this mass I feel this mass panic around, like, mm-hmm. how do we protect ourselves? Don't touch your face. Make sure you're washing your hands. Do you use, uh, do you use uh, hand sanitizer? No, don't use hand sanitizer. That actually, doesn't actually kill a virus. Ah, what are we supposed to do? We're all going to die. <laughs> and it, rather than us saying, hey, Justin Trudeau, fuck you for not having said anything yet, really, about what's going on. Where is your leadership on all of the peripheral things that the federal government has the ability to change? Why is it? the case that in the federal labor code, there are zero days for paid time off Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you're sick. Why is that the case? And how do we force the government to take this opportunity to say, oh, actually, you know what, when the, when disaster strikes, we need to actually prepare for the worst case scenario so that when the times are good, we're not looking around and saying, where can we cut ignoring the worst case scenario? Yeah. I mean, there's no, uh, better time than to like really understand what it is that uh, and often we hear about this from teachers what it is that teachers are talking about when they are talking about contract negotiations and talking about how important it is that we have sick days but in Ontario for those of you who are listeners in Ontario this is a very fresh discussion because the previous government had had mandated paid sick days and um, the current government, the Ford government, has now taken those sick days away. And what impact is that going to have on people right now? Well, the decision that people have to make is it's like, okay, well, perhaps uh, you are in a family that is uh, living uh, at the poverty line and you're doing waged work. And it's like you either go to work or you don't get paid. And that's the difference between feeding a child 
and a child going hungry. Uh, that's not really a decision uh, that somebody can make, you know, whether or not they're going to go to work sick uh, or feed their child. That decision has already ma been made for them. If we live in a system that doesn't support people uh, taking the time they need to get better. And quite frankly, that's the system we live in now. And it is extremely uh, irresponsible for the people mm -hmm. in power to not, one, immediately respond by doing the right thing and providing a systemic solution for people to be able to make those decisions on their own uh, in an emergency situation. But it's also just fucking ridiculous that we, I mean, we know this. This isn't new information. This isn't information that Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau or whomever is learning uh, right now as a result of a potential global pandemic. Uh, this information has been known by uh, public health officials forever. Sick days help to keep people healthy. It's simple. Oh, yeah. I, I want every single uh, political leader who's publicly opposed sick days to, like, I don't know, walk naked down the center of their main street in their town or something. <laughs> I mean, there's there's really no reason to oppose it. The impact that it has on uh, on a on a company is very minimal in terms of like, uh, you know, unexpected people being away. Uh, but also the impact that it has on people not being able, not being afraid to not go to work and feeling as though they're supported at work is a positive impact. Like you, you should be doing it regardless. Totally. <laughs> you know? But we can't expect a greedy capitalist society for companies to be making those decisions on their own. So we should mandate it. This could be worse than it is. Yeah. I mean, a 3.4% fatality rate is, is pretty terrifying, but it, it could be worse. Like, what if it was worse? Like, what would they be doing right now? You know, it's 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 pretty unconscionable that that hasn't been a response. Yeah, it, it like there is a lot of room between three percent and and ninety percent. <laughs> like, we are disrupting our environment in ways that are profound and in ways that will create new illnesses that will uncover old illnesses to come back. That will that will cause havoc in different ways. And if we are not able as a society to deal with a potential pandemic or a clear pandemic that has a death rate of 3.5%, of maybe. I mean, we also don't really know what the death rate is because of, of how testing has not been so great in, a, in large countries like the United States. Then how are we going to deal with anything that is more of a crisis than, than this? I mean, it's, it's a really good window into why we have a public health care system, what are the gaps in the public health care system, and how can we move to make sure that we are identifying those gaps right now? I mean, if you are in state-imposed quarantine, like, let's just start with that. That's, like, the most basic. If, if, if the state has determined that the illness that you have means that you need to be quarantined, why wouldn't your employer pay for you to be quarantined? Like, cops get paid when they've shot someone and they have to go off work for six months. <laughs> and, that, and that's public money. I mean, th this, is, this is about protecting all of us. And it's about giving people incentives and the capacity to be able to 
take the proper precautions. And I mean, like, God, quarantine sounds horrible. Like spending 14 days locked up in your house, maybe surrounded by your family. Like, I'm not sure if you saw one, there's one statistic that said that um, unsurprisingly domestic violence has spiked in the places where people have been quarantined. Um, this is not a holiday. And the state has a, a, an extremely important role to play in paying for people's health. I mean, it's not that complicated. And we built a system originally to do exactly this. And uh, and years and years and years of cuts and, and eroding the, 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 the revenue stream has caused havoc. And now our petro state is going to be plunged again into another crisis thanks to the 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 walking off of the the cliff of the of the cost of oil. <laughs> that was the big news on Monday. Yeah. I mean, I was in Toronto on the weekend and uh, gas was less than a dollar and I was like, "What? Am I seeing this correctly?" Oh my god. Are you, it's <laughs> like am I 10 on? again? <laughs> yeah, I was like, this I don't think that this has happened for like 15, 20 years or something like that. So, um another uh a weird effect of all of this is, you know, how it's affecting um the economy. But just to go back to what you're saying here about like a quarantine and public health, like okay. Let's let's think about like the options in an emergency. Okay, so perhaps you know option one is that you live in a great, uh, great, a better society than say the one that I currently live in. Right, <laughs> that mm. that is like okay, you deserve sick days. Okay, and people are going to get, I don't know, let's say 12, 12 sick days, one sick day a month paid. The, the consequence there is that people get to go home when they're sick or stay home when they're sick and they, they don't feel perhaps the same sort of pressure that they might feel. And maybe they go home, they get to rest, uh, they get to get better. Maybe some people get a little sicker when they're there and end up going to the hospital, but most people probably get better. And more importantly, they're not um, transmitting whatever they've got to other people out in the world. Okay, that's option one. Option two is you say, no, we're we're not going to listen to all of the people telling us how important it is to get sick days. And you're going to continue to go to work until, oh, God, now we're in an Italy situation or now we're in a Wuhan situation. where We're just going to shut down everything. <laughs> and who does that affect the most? People who are in poverty. And let me tell you how those people who are in poverty, whatever affects um, that the amount of you know being able to go to work, being able to access a food bank, being able to access uh, public services that uh, support that can do what little it can to support people who are living in poverty, not being able to access those things in an emergency situation will not only make things worse for them in terms of an economic situation, but it will make people sicker. If we think that the hospitals are going to be stressed out just generally, like, let me tell you how it's going to be super, super bad, much more stressed out, especially in areas of our cities, towns, wherever we're living, where people are generally living below the poverty line. It's going to get worse because those people typically need services outside of their homes, within their community to help them survive. Children who rely on uh, food programs at their schools in low-income neighborhoods may not be able to access those food programs. What happens to those children if we wait for a quarantine situation? 
Like, it just seems so obvious to me. And I just, it must be obvious to those in power as well, um, which just, you know, leads me to the um, always conclusion that those people just don't give a shit about people who, uh, who are poor. Oh, clearly. Clearly. I mean, could you imagine the, the audacity of the Ford government to be like, we're not releasing our coronavirus plan? Like, as of Monday, Ontario has 34 cases, confirmed cases of coronavirus. The response from British Columbia would suggest that they have like four times that because it has been public. It has been, you know, very clear updates from public health officials and from politicians. They have fewer confirmed cases in Ontario. They have 32 uh, British Columbia, one of the, the, the focal points of their outbreak has been a long-term care facility. So we also, in this discussion, have um, the role that long-term care facilities play in keeping the elderly safe and healthy and also keeping society at large healthy as we are all connected with one another. Like, this is the thing about the coronavirus that I think is just so, um, so shocking. Like, the fact that it's more deadly for older people lays bare so many problems mm. with the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. We rely mm-hmm. on hallway medicine as if, you know, being in a hallway is like fine for a couple of hours. It is not a room and you cannot contain people in a hallway. So that's a problem. We have uh, understaffed, overstretched, overworked uh, individuals in the healthcare system and the long-term care system. We know this from the inquiry of Elizabeth Wetlawfer in Ontario. That's the woman who was murdering people in old age uh, facilities because there was no oversight. There was no staffing requirements that people paid attention to her work and her murders went completely undetected until she herself confessed them. And that was not a situation that was like a fluke. I mean, it was a fluke because she was a serial murderer, but the conditions under which she was able to, to, to murder, those are really common conditions within long-term care facilities. And it is not surprising that this virus has been the most deadly in long-term care facilities. And, and, and it shows just like how brutal our society is to older folks, to people in poverty, to people with long-term uh, or chronic health issues it's 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 just like it's it's so baffling and you know as of monday march 9th there have been uh, the government of canada's website says there's 77 cases i know this number is already out of date because quebec is reporting five confirmed cases and this website says four and this is absolutely going to get worse and so we need provincial politicians and the federal government to start saying okay, we are going to fix X. We are going to create a national pharmacare program because that is that is what keeps people healthy. That is what makes sure that mm-hmm. underlying chronic issues don't come become out of control because people can't afford their medicine. You know, that, yeah, it, it, and to everybody that's like, don't politicize this issue, it's like, what the fuck? This is such it's already a political issue. Because I got a lot of that today. It's already politicized. I asked on Twitter if I had missed a comment from the prime minister or if he's just laying low. And so many people responded, oh, this can't be politicized. This is this is less left up to the, to the professionals. And it's like there are two sides that need to be moving on this stuff. And and, and the, the professional healthcare 
people need to be doing their work, but let's listen to what they're saying too. And so when a nurse in Quebec is saying, I am working 16 hour, 20 hour shifts, doctors are sleeping in uh, waiting rooms or in, in private on gurneys to, to, to get through a 20 hour or 24 hour shift in an epidemic or a pandemic, guess what's going to happen? People will die because the medical establishment cannot handle any more strain. We are already at capacity. And as you mentioned, a pharma care program, like let's let's think about that in a in an emergency situation as well. Some of the 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 advice that's been disseminated on the news that's causing like the toilet paper frenzy is also telling people to make sure that they have medicine to last over a month just in case of a quarantine. Can you imagine being like saying to someone, make sure you have medicine that lasts over a month without knowing what sort of medicine that they rely on. Some people have to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on their medicine. Some people don't have that covered. For some people, they're making choices about whether or not um, they're going to take all the medicine that they should be taking um, uh, in a particular week. Maybe they'll try to stretch it out um, to make sure that it lasts as long as possible because we do not have a pharmacare program. Well, guess what? Those people are probably not as well as they should be if they're making decisions like that because we don't have a pharmacare program. Uh, and those people might be at higher risk uh, when, when a pandemic like the one that is confronting us today comes along. It's like these, these programs that people demand uh, for a society that just will make our society better is not just because of, you know, good principles and excellent ideology, although that should be enough. <laughs> uh, it's also because it's fucking good for us. Like it is, it's public health. Uh, and if we already had that, that would be something that we'll be able to rely on. But what happens to people who are in a quarantine who don't have the ability uh, to, to get medicine for that far in advance? What happens to those people? What's the emergency plan for that? The healthcare system needs a lot of fixes. The professionals have been talking about those fixes for years. Now is a really good time for our politicians to be thinking about this and to, to start enacting measures that will contain this virus and that hopefully can be continued after this virus to make sure public health remains you know, as strong as it can be. I think for any Canadian who has ever questioned the existence of the public health care system, that looking at what's happening in the United States is a really good example of how dire it it can be when things are an emergency. And so, like, you know, at least we have this. At least we have our public health care. And we need to do every single thing that we possibly can to save it. And um, that's that fight is going to look different based on where you are in Canada, because, of course, most of the public health care system is, is, is provincially regulated. But there is also the Canada Health Act. It's a federal piece of legislation. The federal government has a huge role to play in health care, not the least of which is to fund it. Just a side note. They never restored the funding that was pulled out of healthcare when they created the Canada Health and Social Transfer, which pulled $4 billion out of social transfers um, in the mid-1990s under the, the, the Chrétien Martin, Martin years. So that was a very famous budget that really set neoliberal policies in action in, in Canada. The other thing that I think that we need to talk about is the peripheral issues to all of the health side of, of coronavirus, which is obviously the health side is like the most important. And so 
I'm not sure if you saw, but France has announced that they are banning gatherings of more than a thousand people um, as a way to contain the virus. You mentioned Italy. The whole country is under quarantine. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. They announced this today, which seems so convenient considering the mass protests that have broken out in France in the last uh, six months, in the last year, from the Gilets Jaunes, from the fight to save French pensions. And sorry, so it's sorry, like... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Of more than a thousand people, but 500 school. Like, I just... I, <laughs> exactly. I mean, maybe, maybe a doctor can tell me about, like, maybe I'm off <laughs> or something. Maybe an epidemiologist can help me out here. But that sounds mm, useless. <laughs> it sounds completely useless. Someone responded to me uh, talking about this on Twitter today by saying uh, a thousand seems like a, an odd number. And I couldn't help myself <laughs> and remind him that it's that it's even. But um, <laughs> it's. Uh, yeah, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's been a lot of discussions about um, from, from American journalists about how authoritarianism in China is what made the government miss the coronavirus, that the government was uninterested in hearing the warnings from doctors. And so they missed and didn't contain the coronavirus when they should have. I'd be interested to seeing the, the analyses of the same journalists to say what American style, quote unquote, democracy is doing to the coronavirus, because I mean, I think Trump is probably shitting the bed in a profound way on this. But the, the, the authoritarian uh, tendencies, I think, that, that many governments have, we're going to see them rear their heads and they're going to play into public panic. And so I really want people to pay attention to, like, is the rhetoric of governments talking about banning events, shutting down events, uh, canceling things, making sure you don't go to rallies or public places or anything like that. School, right? There are a lot of people talking about trying to put school online as a way to not spread the virus. What is that... Um, how does that compare to how public health officials are talking about this virus? They are consistently saying that there's no reason to panic, that the risk remains low. And so if that's the case, then are these the things we should be doing? Or should we be like insisting in, in very specific ways that governments do other things that are tangible, like paid sick leave, like providing uh, uh care for for children i mean what the fuck if you're a parent who's quarantined and you're you have the coronavirus what happens with your kids this has been the question i've had this entire time where do you send your kids or are you all just quarantined together till your kids get sick look if we're in an emergency situation where people have to be at home and kids can't go to school i i <laughs> could you imagine being a parent making sure that your kid is sitting in front of a computer <laughs> make sure that you you get your grade one lesson done timmy like what like do we oh, yeah. must we must we be so productive at all times that even in an emergency quarantine situation the response is figuring out how to make sure those kids learn damn it <laughs> like in the exact same like <laughs> come on you know if that's where we're at that shouldn't be the focus is making sure that the teachers are still working, <laughs> that the, the kids are still learning. Like the focus should be on what we're going to do as a society uh, to make sure that we're all safe. If that's the place where we're at, if that's not the place that we're at, then maybe we should focus on trying to make sure that that's not the place that we get to. I just, mm. you know, it just seems like our priorities are all out of whack. And that's just a function of the, the type of society that we live in right now. And that's what's really do me. That's what's making me feel really morose. You know, like I, I 
what is this inability to prioritize uh, what needs to be prioritized in this stage that we're at right now, um, where it seems like it's possible to still stop? Yeah, the, the final aspect of coronavirus that we absolutely have to talk about is racism. I mean, just stop being dicks, people. Like, come on. <laughs> the fuck? I mean, I'm hoping that people who listen to this podcast are not amongst the racist population. But look, a, a, a virus that originates uh, in Wuhan does not mean that you need to avoid uh, eating foods in your city uh, that are you know, like avoid eating Chinese food or avoid eating uh, East Asian cuisine. Like that doesn't make any sense. Get it together or avoid Asian people altogether. Like, come on. That's not, that's not <laughs> how illness uh, works. <laughs> I just, I mean, you might be racist, but viruses aren't. Yeah. <laughs> they, they truly do not give a fuck what their hosts <laughs> phenotypes are. Yeah. And in Canada, and we mentioned this already with poverty, but I think we need to put a really fine point on this. The, there will be a racial impact, a racist impact in that people who uh, live in communities with no running water especially Indigenous people who live on reserves that have not had running water for years and that have always dealt with illnesses as a result of that. Uh, for, for people who live in multi-generational dwellings where lots of people live together in small, small uh, quarters, again, something else that is characteristic of many people's lives living on, in, on reserve, they will be hit the hardest. And we know that the federal government doesn't give a fuck about these communities. We know this because, of course, when the H1N1 virus was like the last kind of big public health uh, thing that, that Canadians went through, there were communities in northern uh, Manitoba, if I'm not mistaken, that were sent body bags rather than being sent help, sanitizers and other medical equipment to deal with H1N1. And you know, it's a different government, right? Trudeau, so in a reconciliation or whatever. But it doesn't matter because the social conditions exist and the social conditions are not going to change faster than the pandemic is going to reach us. Like this is going to accelerate in the next couple of weeks. That's pretty much for sure. That's how these things work. And that means that the society that we've created is so racist in its segmentation that we have created the conditions to make sure that when a pandemic hits Canada, it will hit Indigenous people, Indigenous communities the hardest, racialized people the hardest, people living in poverty the hardest, people with chronic illness the hardest, and in this case, people who are who are elderly. And and so as I asked what would happen to my kids if I get quarantined, what happens if, if an individual is quarantined and they live with their parents and their grandparents and their children? Where do people go? What's the federal government's plan to, to deal with that? And the fact that we haven't heard anything at all uh, on on what the plans are mm -hmm. for helping mm -hmm. Indigenous communities get ready for the pandemic, I mean, that I think is really telling because with the federal government, you know, you can say all you want that this is a provincial issue, but on reserve health care is a very clear federal issue. And since the protests have died down uh, and since, you know, negotiations have happened with leadership in Wet'suwet'en, 
it's just fallen off again, the radar. And, and it's as if this is not a, a set of communities that deserve to be front and center in how we talk about these viruses. That has to change. And I hope that uh, if you are a journalist, uh, you know, feel free to take that idea. Feel free to write about it. Feel free to talk to folks living uh, in communities about their health infrastructure and find out how devastatingly insufficient it is uh, on, on the regular, let alone uh, when a crisis hits. Thank mm-hmm. you.